turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning in the message, but we're going to read the first nine verses just to kind of set the stage today for uh, our study. And you'll recognize what's going on here. But after you have found 1 Samuel 8 in your Bible, stand with me. Let's read it together. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they're, they're doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, again thank you for your provision. We thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for uh, this truth that you have revealed uh, to us. It's truth that we can live by, that you desire for us to live by. And, Lord, we pray you'd help us to do exactly that. Lord, uh, help us to uh, follow your truth and abide by your truth, even when it's not popular, even when... It's something we might not even want to hear. But, Lord, we pray this morning that uh, we would be open, that we would be receptive, that we would be ready to heed your word, and uh, that we would uh, not only hear it but obey it. So, Lord, we pray this morning that uh, you would work in our midst. Lord, we uh, pray for our students as they also are under your word this morning, and we pray that uh, they've had a fantastic week. We pray for a hand of protection on them as they make their way back. And, Lord, we thank you again for the privilege of worship, a time of being able to exalt Christ and to uh, uh, worship uh, you and to uh, just acknowledge your majesty. So, Lord, we know it's a, a rich blessing, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Two men were hiking along a trail near the Grand Canyon when they spotted a huge eagle lying dead on the ground. They turned the eagle over and saw a weasel underneath. Immediately, they knew exactly what happened. 
that great, powerful eagle had been soaring through the sky when it spotted a tiny weasel running on the ground. With one great swoop, the eagle came down and grabbed the weasel in its powerful claws and ascended back up again. But the weasel, struggling for its life, managed to sink its teeth into the belly of that eagle. The eagle lost so much blood that it eventually fell to the ground and died. Why am I telling this story? Because sometimes we get exactly what we want and it kills us. It can be a very dangerous thing indeed to insist on our own way, especially when it goes against God's ideal. That's exactly what we find in 1 Samuel 8. The people of Israel insisted on a king like all the other nations. And this insistence will ultimately bring much pain and suffering. But sometimes God allows us to have what we want, even if it's against his will, in order to accomplish his greater purpose. Sometimes he will allow us to get what we want and suffer the consequences in order to teach us the lessons that he wants us to learn. Now, we all know that the Bible is a revelation of God himself. We would never know God apart from his own revelation of himself. First, with the general revelation of creation, but more fully in the revelation of his word. But what we often forget is that the Bible is also a revelation of God's people. It tells us much about who we are. And often we do not like what it reveals to us. It exposes us as sinful, rebellious people. It reveals that we are depraved and foolish. This is an important part of the purpose of 1 Samuel 8. Because here we find God's analysis of Israel and of us. And here we find what some would want to avoid seeing. And we could easily take the heat off of ourselves by focusing on the minute details of this text. But if we do that, we will miss the main message of this chapter. And whether we realize it or not, what we really need this morning is to take the painful route. We need to allow this text to reveal to us our foolish hearts and to see that we also reject God for the sake of a human king. Now, I need to start this morning with a little historical background before we move into this. By this time, Israel had suffered through 500 years of continuous turmoil and military conflict. The time of the judges 
had been a very dark period in their history. But a new hope had come with the replacement of Eli and his wicked sons with the prophet Samuel, who had brought about a spiritual reformation to the nation. Israel's future looked bright and hopeful, but there was one problem. Samuel was getting older, and some of the old patterns began to reemerge. Now, we're going to see this development in five stages here. The first one really sets the stage for what took place. So, notice, first of all, the regression. The regression. Look with me at verse 1. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now, I don't like that verse for a couple of reasons. First, because it says that Samuel was old when the reality is he was probably in his early 60s. And I don't know how that makes you feel, but I don't like it. No, the truth of the matter is Samuel lived many years beyond this. But the simple fact that he was getting older caused the people to start thinking about some plan for his succession. The other thing I don't like about this verse is what Samuel did. He did exactly what he had seen Elot do. And even though he knew his own sons were not godly, he went ahead and appointed them to key offices in Israel. And this is an amazing thing to me, yet in reality it's so common even today. He saw the wickedness of Eli's sons, and he witnessed God's wrath and judgment on them, and then he turned right around and did something very similar himself. Why are we so slow to learn these kinds of lessons? Look with me at verse 2. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah, they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Amazingly, Samuel failed as a father, just like Eli did. What happened here? Samuel's sons did not have the same character and integrity that he had. They did not grow up to be godly men like he was. They were corrupt, just like the sons of Eli were. How did this happen, and how does this happen still today? By this time, Samuel had literally devoted his entire life to God. He had faithfully served as a judge and prophet, bringing Israel to a point of spiritual reformation. His role had not been easy at all, but he had been faithful to God. Yet his sons were not. This is a 
graphic reminder that each person makes his own decisions and no one can ever depend on the faith and godliness of their parents. Every person must choose the path that he will take in life. And it's interesting here because this indicates that Samuel likely had his own succession plan. Rather than trusting God to replace him in his leadership of the people, Samuel was trying to groom his own sons to take his place. But despite their godly heritage, they did not have the same character and were unfit to be spiritual leaders. They ended up taking bribes for personal gain, and their evil ways perverted justice in the land. But beyond this, it gave the people of Israel an excuse for demanding a king. It became the occasion for the rejection of God's rule in favor of a human king. And with Samuel getting older, no one wanted to get stuck with the rule of these wicked sons of his. So this leads us to the second stage, which is the request. Look with me at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Their request slash demand sounded logical and reasonable from a human perspective. It seemed plausible. Samuel was getting up there in age And a transition was surely on the horizon. Their solution? Establish a new form of government. After all, this is what all the other nations were doing. You know, we often warn our young people about the danger of peer pressure. But we as adults think we're immune from that. We usually call it something else, like keeping up with the Joneses. It's the same thing. In essence, the people of Israel were succumbing to an international form of peer pressure. They were giving in to a sinful desire to be like all the other nations. And in doing so, they were rejecting God's rule over them. This is the age-old temptation to imitate men rather than God. It is the same effective strategy Satan has employed from the beginning of time to get us to focus on what other people are doing rather than on what God has commanded. And what we need to understand here is that it was not wrong in and of itself for Israel to have a king. In fact, God himself had given them instructions hundreds of years earlier about having a king rule over them. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 15, God had said, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and say, 
I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And then he goes and gives all the standards and stipulations for that king. God had already anticipated there would come a time when there would be a king in Israel. The problem was not with having a king. The problem was the reason why they wanted a king. And if we jump ahead a little bit, we see their motives in verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Not only did they want to be like all the nations around them, but they wanted a king to fight their battles for them. They thought that having a king would guarantee them success in warfare. But as we will see, that is clearly not the case. In fact, if we cheat a little bit and we run ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 12, we find that God's verdict on their demand is confirmed. In 1 Samuel 12, Samuel has now by this point appointed a king, but he goes back then over all the various ways that Yahweh has provided for his people previous to this time. And he rehearses the Lord's saving deeds in past times, in Israel's distress. Exhibit A is the way God delivered them from Egypt. And in their slavery, they cried out to God, and he sent them Moses and Aaron to deliver them. Exhibit B was during the time of the judges, when they forgot God and they turned to idolatry, and God gave them into the hands of various oppressors. When they cried out to God, he sent them deliverers like Gideon and Deborah and Samson, etc. Exhibit C was when Nahash, the Ammonite, came up against them and flexed his military muscles. And verse 12 of that chapter says, When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. And going back to chapter 8, the urgency of their present situation is something very similar in chapter 8. They were facing several military threats. And verse 20 tells us they wanted a king to fight all their battles for them. What's the problem? This is a shift in where they should be placing their trust. Their help would no longer be in the strong name of Yahweh, but now in their human king. So it's not... The monarchy itself, that is the problem. It is the trust in the monarchy. And their thinking is that a new form of government will solve all their problems. Sometimes we as Christians still today 
fall into that same kind of trap when we things, think things like, you know, if we can just get certain people elected, that's going to solve all our problems. This is how they were thinking. Now, we're going to come back to the application of this in a few moments. But let's move on thirdly to the rejection. The rejection. Look at verse 6. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Perhaps Samuel was disappointed, at least in part, because... This felt like a rejection of his own leadership. Remember, he had literally given his entire life in service to God's people. First as a priest in the temple, then as a judge, and finally as the Lord's prophet. Of course, those who reject God's sovereignty and lordship in their lives usually Reject the Lord's prophets as well. Those who stand and boldly proclaim the word of the Lord are often hated by the worlds and are even despised at times by God's own own people. So Samuel may have been feeling some of this kind of rejection. But there is likely more to this statement. He probably understood the danger of the people wanting a man they could see instead of the Lord whom they could not see. He was more likely displeased with what this request meant in regard to their trust in the Lord. And notice what Samuel did. He didn't lash out or try to retaliate in some way. He went to the Lord. He went to the Lord. And again, we see the heart of this man and his godly character as he immediately turns to the Lord for guidance and help. When verses 7 and 8, Yahweh evaluates the people's request. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day in that they have forsaken me and served other gods so they are doing to you also now in order to really hear what this chapter is intended to communicate we have to hear God's assessment of this according to God Their request for a king was a rejection of him. The king would not be a replacement for Samuel, but a replacement for God. Davis says, what we have here is simply the old idolatry with a new twist. Any attempt to replace the one true God with anything else is idolatry. And according to God himself, that is exactly what they were doing. Now, of course, God's plan was that he would be their king and that they would fully trust in him to lead and provide for them. God's plan for Israel was that they be a theocracy. But as we clearly see here, 
the people of Israel were continually led away from God's ideal by the world around them. And this, of course, is still a problem for God's people today. The church faces the very same constant temptation to be lured away by the world around us. We want to be just like the world. We want to fit in. We want the world to think we're cool. This is what is driving much of the evangelical church today. But that is the exact opposite of what God desires. And think about it. We're just like the Israelites in another way. It is much easier, according to our human mindset, to trust in a human being that we can see than to trust in a God that we cannot see. In the same way that they said, give us a king, so we might say, you know, give us a charismatic pastor we can follow. Give us a human leader we can trust in. My friend, it is always a danger when we begin to trust more in a man than in the true and living God. It is always a danger. And pastors must always remember we are merely under shepherds. We can never take the place of the true and living God. What does the Word of God say about this? Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. People will let you down. God never will. Psalm 146.3, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. Where must we put our trust? In God alone. The danger of Shifting our trust from God to man is often a very subtle thing. In fact, it is probably helpful if we just take a minute here and see chapter 8 in its proper perspective. In chapter 7, we have a contrast with this chapter. As the people fully trusted God to deliver them from the Philistines, and God gave them an overwhelming victory. Chapter 4 is a parallel to chapter 8. As the people shifted their trust from God himself to an object, the Ark of the Covenants, and in that chapter they were depending on superstition and seeking to manipulate God. Here they're turning to a human leader to win their battles. But the point is, it is still idolatry. In one place, they're trusting a thing instead of God. In another place, they're trusting a person instead of God. But any kind of shift away from fully trusting in God alone is idolatry. And we must stop and apply this to our day and time. Even in the church today, this can become a real problem. For example, how many times do we, when we have some big problem in our life, how many times do we seek to solve our problems through some sort of human solution instead of turning to the Lord himself? How often do we do that? Even in the church we do this. 
Our tendency when things are not going well in the church is to immediately assume that there must be something wrong with our techniques or our methodologies. And we think there, there has to be something wrong with our administration or our, our system that needs doctoring. So what is our response? Well, it's not repentance. It's some sort of adjustment to our program. Davis says how easy it is for even energetic evangelicals to look for a new gimmick rather than to cry out for a new heart. Listen, my friend, we must make sure we are not trusting in an object and that we're not trusting in a man, that we're not trusting in a a method or trusting in a plan. We must be trusting in God alone. And whatever else we might say about this chapter, we must understand that the verdict of God is that the people had rejected him. The verdict of God was that they were shifting their trust from him to a human king. Look at verse 7 again. And the people said to Samuel, listen to the voice. Uh, and, the Lord said to the, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And notice Sometimes God will give you what you want to your own peril. Listen, don't ever think that just because you get your way, that that is evidence of God's blessing on your life. It might be a sign not of his favor, but of your own stubbornness. And getting your own way may turn out to be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Now, the reverse of that is also true. Sometimes God's greatest kindness toward us is when he does not answer our prayers the way we want him to. He knows best. Sometimes his no is a great blessing in disguise. And notice something else here in verse 7. In light of their current situation and danger with many enemies all around, Israel's request for a king was perfectly rational. It was rational. And yet God viewed it as a rejection of him. Davis writes, Our proposals and solutions can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless at the same time he says because some of our idolatry is so sophisticated and appears so reasonable it can become extremely difficult to detect and yet it is detestable in the sight of god in fact look at verse 8 again this is how god understood this Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are also doing to you. Very same thing. Over and over again, the people of Israel had seen God's mighty power and provision, and they had turned to other gods and forsaken the one true God. 
over and over again. They had demonstrated unbelief and failed to trust in Yahweh. We often do the same. But notice verse 9. Now then, listen to their voice. However, however, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. God said, give them what they want, but first warn them of exactly what this is going to be like. That's exactly what Samuel does in verses 10 through 18. So we move fourthly to the reality the reality. Samuel was instructed here to spell out for them exactly what life would be like under a king. Often we think we know what we want, but we usually do not fully understand all the ramifications of our choice. This would be the case with Israel. And in verses 10 through 18, Samuel lays it all out for them. And what Samuel describes really is simply the normal operation of a king. This is what it's like to live under a monarchy. Yes, there are great benefits, but there are also great costs. In fact, I'm going to summarize this, but it can really be expressed with the recurring phrase... He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. Four times he uses that verb. And what will he take? Everything that is precious to them. All their possessions the king will requisition for himself. For example, think of your sons, he says. The king is going to draft them into his service and he's going to make them foot soldiers and charioteers and horsemen and platoon leaders your sons are going to get drafted into the military israel had never had a standing army before and although they probably thought it was high time they had one to compete with the likes of the philistines who were very well trained They needed to know that there was going to be a cost involved. Their sons are going to have to go to battle. And from a human perspective, having no well-trained, well-equipped army must have made them feel very vulnerable against organized military forces with iron weapons like the Philistines. But we need to remember that it had always been the Lord who had fought their battles. But Samuel went on to explain that others are going to get drafted as well. Some are going to become the king's farmers, and some are going to be his miners, and some his masons, and some his lumberjacks. Others are going to be assigned to make weapons of war. It's going to be a cost. Israel had never had a centralized government before, and there had never been any civil service requirements. Now there would be. Having this form of government may have initially sounded attractive to them, but again, they needed to understand the cost. Oh, and what about your daughters? You think they're going to be able to stay home? No, the king is going to take your daughters and he's going to make them cooks and bakers and perfume makers. 
and your daughters are going to be drafted as well. They won't be immune from this. What about your land? King's going to take that as well. He's going to take the finest of your fields for himself. He's going to take your vineyards. He's going to even take your crops. Ever heard of taxes? Of course, the king's lackeys have to eat. So you'll have to give your grain and your wheat to feed them. Verse 15, he talks about a tenth or tithe, which was a tax in this case that the king would require from everyone. They had already been paying a tithe for the maintenance of the temple, but Samuel is saying they would have to pay an additional tithe to pay for all the services that the king would need. Samuel goes on to say he'll even take your servants as his own. He'll use your servants to work his livestock and to keep his palace and to do all his work that he wants done. In other words, there's a good word to describe what a king will do. It's called slavery. In fact, he says, before all is said and done, you will be crying out just like the people did when they were slaves in Egypt. Why are we having to serve this king? This is not a rosy picture here. This is a very bleak picture. And often this is the kind of thing we get when we insist on our own way. It's not like we thought it was going to be. It ends up being a long ways from God's best. So what would they do? Would they heed this warning from God's man? Would they change their mind and fully trust God to continue to be their king? The last thing we see in this chapter is the response. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And we also may, that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The people are going to have their own way. And as Psalm 106.15 says, God gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. After Samuel had solemnly warned them about life under a monarchy, they refused to budge from their demands. And notice there is reason that we also may be like all the nations. The truth of the matter is that God's people often have an aversion to holiness. That is, we don't want to be different for the Lord's sake. No, we want to blend in. We want to be like everybody else. We don't want to be distinct from the world. And for Israel at this moment in time, it was more than just a desire. It was a passion. They thought, we'll finally fit in with all the nations of the world around us. We'll finally have the same kind of government all the other nations have. After all, this is the Iron Age. 
And we must have the structure that will propel us into the new century. We need to be more progressive. And yet that was exactly the opposite of God's plan. I mean, just read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. God's intention for them was that they would be holy for His sake. God's plan for them was that they would be different from the world's, that they would be distinct so that they could lead all the nations of the world to God. God's plan for them was not to be like all the nations. I mean, think about it. What other nation had ever heard the voice of God speaking to them from the fire and the mountain and the thunder and lived? Only one. Only one. What other nation had experienced deliverance from the clutches of tyranny and survived? Only one. Israel could not escape being different. This was God's plan. Oh, but she could try. And so we in the church today can also go the opposite direction from where God wants us to be. We too can try to be like all the nations. We can strive to be like the world and, you know, to be relevant and have people think we're cool. Never mind that God says, be holy, for I am holy. Never mind the fact that God has called us to come out from among them and be separate. We would prefer instead to keep in step with our culture and to blend in and fit in the mold of society and be like everybody else. I mean, after all, Who wants to be a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Who wants to live a life of winsome purity? Who wants to have a wholesome vocabulary in the midst of a filthy, vulgar culture? Who wants to dress modestly in the midst of a culture that seems to desire to dress provocatively? The church of our generation doesn't seem to be interested in any of that. We're just like Israel. We want to be like all the nations. We want to be just like the world. I mean, why should we have a different definition of success in the church? Why should we have a passion for worship over entertainment? Why should we have different moral standards in our Homes and families. Because this is God's will for us. But we have to be, we have to resist the temptation to be like all the nations. Alexander McLaren, an older commentator, once wrote, One of the first lessons which we have to learn is a wholesome disregard for other people's ways. Disregard for other people's ways. And you know what is shocking to me is that being just like the world is the strategic philosophy of the vast majority of churches in America today. It is 
exactly the opposite of what God wants. Well, it's interesting. Because back in chapter 3, verse 19, we're told the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. But here in chapter 8, verse 19, we're told the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And by the way, the mule-headedness of Israel teaches us something very important that our world today still does not understand. It teaches us that knowledge and information does not in and of itself empower change. I mean, think about it. Just watch the commentary on the news today in regard to any kind of social or moral problem in our society. They may interview some so-called expert. And what is the answer they come up with? The answer, according to the experts, is that we need more education on this matter. We need to educate people on the harmful effects of this behavior so people will turn away from it, right? What is that? That is the education fallacy. The education fallacy assumes that if people only know something will destroy them, that they will leave it alone. What's the problem with that? It doesn't take into account the intrinsic foolishness that is ingrained in the human heart. Listen, and listen well. Education can clarify, but it cannot transform. It cannot transform. That's why spiritual regeneration of the heart is so critical. Apart from the gospel and a genuine transformation of the human heart, we can never be changed through education alone. So here we see God's people hear his wisdom, but they do not submit to it. They insist on their own way. Look at verse 21. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. God is going to give them what they want, even if it kills them. And this is a mirror for us to look into. How easy it is for us to fall into the very same kind of resistance. How easy it is for us to exhibit the same kind of stubbornness. How easy it is for us to have misplaced trust just like they did. How will we respond to God and the message of this chapter? Will we heed it with true wisdom? Will we do just like the Israelites? Or will we do better? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you would help us as your people to respond in a better way than what we see in this chapter that we might Know that you, Lord, alone 
are the only worthy object of our trust. That we can never trust in men. That we can never trust in methods or strategies or administration. But we must always trust in you. And Lord, I pray that you would just burn this truth deep in our hearts today. And that we might be people of faith demonstrating absolute trust in you. So, Lord, we pray this morning if there's someone here today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we pray they would come to know you. And, Lord, for the rest of us, that that we would fully trust you every single day of our lives, that uh, we would never, ever doubt you and your word and your provision and your power in our lives. So, Lord, we pray this morning you would convict us, help us to... uh, Apply the truths of this chapter to our lives and help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.